and welcome to episode 206 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane and we are amateur astronomers that love looking up the night sky and this podcast is anyone else likes going to under the stars. How was your week, Shane? Oh, it was pretty good. Um, finally starting to uh, get into some spring weather here, which is nice. Snow is yeah. melting. Temperatures are quite a bit better. Um, and the skies have like, they're gradually getting better. Um, yeah. you know, last night we had some high level cloud, uh, but transparency was not bad. You know, it certainly wasn't a clear night, but, um, yeah. the, what was it? Uh, probably a 97% moon or something shone through quite nicely. Uh, I did yeah. a lot of solar observing, uh, yesterday actually in the backyard too, with, uh, my oh, little nice. H alpha Lunt and, it was such a good morning. Like the, the seeing was outstanding. Actually, for most of the day, the seeing was really, really good for, for solar. Um, wow. The, uh, the surface detail was, was really stunning. There was, there was three um, fairly prominent, uh, I think, I can't remember now. If, I think they're called fissures, but I, I can't, don't quote me on that, but kind of big black streaks uh, on the surface of the sun. Okay. And then, uh, like along the edge, there was just like, okay, like what I'm used to seeing for prominence is, is you'll have like an area where there's like two or three, you know, kind of larger active prominences and then little to nothing for the rest of the sun, but pretty much all the way around, like there was nothing gigantic in terms of prominences, but just like little prickly prominence prominences pretty much all the way, uh, around, you know, fairly well spread out with, um, uh, there was this one active region, I guess it would have been on the Western limb. And, um, it was just like, it was sort of a wedge of a prominence that was coming off the side or off the limb. And then it looked like, you know, it was sort of trailing, like there was a, I don't know, matter trailing it kind of a line of illuminated, I don't know what it would have been gassiness or something, I guess. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was just nice to, you know, put an eye to a telescope. Um, so again, I was using my 35 millimeter Lunt. I had an 18 millimeter, uh, super mono in there. And, uh, you know, I got to say too, like for anybody that is into the hydrogen alpha, uh, solar observing, that's probably like using minimal glass eyepieces. I, I noticed the most difference with that type of observing, like in terms of the performance boost you get with a, uh, a simpler eyepiece, like a, a monocentric or a, an orthoscopic eyepiece. Uh, they really do perform much better on uh, H-alpha than anything else that I've used. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. How yeah. about you? How was your week? Well, I mean, it was... Uh... It was good because I was really happy that we've uh, finally gotten into some some warmer weather, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that that period of time that we had uh, pretty much since before Christmas, like this, this, I think is the longest period we've had where it hasn't dipped um, below uh, into the into the very cold minus 20s uh, for over a week now. So we're I think we're on our eighth day uh, into uh, what mo most people would consider winter-like weather <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like these these weeks i always think oh this is like what winter is, is like back in in nova scotia where i'm from but uh yeah i know so that's that's really nice um and yeah we are starting to get some periods of sun there was one day it was beautifully sunny i think it was thursday uh, i was on the phone with dale who's one of our uh, committee members um for the uh for the observing committee with the RASC. 
and I uh, shouldn't say phone. We were, we were doing a Zoom call over over my lunch break and uh, chatting about the Kemble project. And uh, anyway, just this gorgeous, gorgeous blue sky. He couldn't see it though. I had, you know, I, I blur out my office because my office just doesn't look like anything at work. And, and so people are like, oh, let me see your office. I'm like, here you go. And they're like, yeah, it doesn't look like anything. So I just blur it out. But you can't see up my window. It just looks white, but it was this beautiful uh, blue sky. Um, yeah, but it's nice, nice to see see that we're we're sort of rounding a corner here, eh? Yeah, yeah, it really is. And um the uh the forecast for this week, there should be some clear skies for us. Yeah. Um but really what this yeah, yeah. And really what what this means is we're you know we're getting into the the mode where you know the the skies here are usually pretty good spring, summer, fall. They're just not usually very good in the wintertime. So we're going to get back into a, a period here where you and I can do some real observing again and, and hopefully every, yeah. you know, all the weather uh, variables line up and we're able to get out there and do it. Yeah. And, and we will, you know, it, it'll, it'll happen here. I mean, we're just sort of into a, a bit of a spell here where um, the roads are pretty rough at night. Like uh, it's still pretty rough even just to get out of our road. And then, cause they don't, they, they did plow this year. This is the first year they did a regular plowing schedule for, I think February, they came and, and took off the top layer and that definitely helped things out. Um, but yeah, even, even like our roads in the city are a bit rough and actually the roads out in the country are a little bit better. They have uh, better plowing. Uh, they have to, but, uh, yeah, ordered some, uh, books this week. Oh yeah. Which ones? Books. So, you know, ch- chatting, uh, with, with you and, and others about like Kemble's observations, you know, there was, there was a few things that he, that he used quite a bit. Um, one of them was the Atlas of Deep Sky Splendors by Hans uh, Varenberg. And uh, this is a book that came out by Sky Publishing in 1978. Have you ever seen a copy of this? No, no, I haven't. Pro- probably there's a copy of Kemble's down there at the, uh, at, at the uh, club uh, library, I would imagine, unless, uh, unless he gifted it to somebody. Um, but I remember looking at it and... It, it didn't appeal to me back 20 years ago. I remember I was looking at it. It had to be 20 years ago anyway. And I thought, ah, oh, this isn't really for me. I don't really get this. Um, but this is sort of causing me to take a second look. And I frequently come across references to it in other uh, deep sky observers uh, writings like Omira or Alan Whitman or people like that. And so I'm like, huh, well, I'll, I'll bite the bullet. I bought a used copy for $20, say, and uh, pretty excited to get that. Um, the other thing I ordered is, uh, this book, and this was on my to buy list forever. And I'm not sure why it's come down so much in price, but it's a book by, I think this, this person was a university professor over at university of Calgary or somewhere. I, maybe I'm wrong. I, I, I think they were in Alberta just next door here. And they wrote a book on planetary nebulas and they called it uh, cosmic butterflies, which is a beautiful name. It was like a coffee table book. Hmm. And do you ever hear of this book? No, I don't think so. And anyway, and it's it's this beautiful book. And I know it's beautiful because I, I went to a telescope store once and I was going to buy it. But the price, I forget how much it cost, but it had to be over $100 because that's sort of like kind of my limit for hemming and hawing pretty good. And uh, I didn't buy it. I was traveling at the time and I was like, oh, I don't want to carry this this around. It was like a big coffee table book. Um, like I said, it was pretty expensive. I got one for for $10 shipping included. So it's in like new condition. What's that? 
I just said, holy smokes, that's uh, that's really good. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not really sure why that is, but I thought, well, I'll roll the dice and get it. It's, it says it's going to take three months to get to me, so who knows? Um, but uh, yeah, I'm excited to to see that it's it's a beautiful book. I remember flipping through it and always wanted to get a copy. And uh, and like I said, I I think I'd run across reference to it in uh, in Kemble. And then as well, um, Kemble had been a member of the Web Society, and so I, I was looking for some stuff that he had referenced in some letters to. Uh, Alistair Ling. I was communicating with Alistair Ling about him, and we we came across some references. So uh, you can get these digitally, and so I decided that I would uh, I would write and and get a copy of them. Um, bit of a bit of a rigmarole because I think like any organization with these astronomy type clubs is their volunteer run, and um, it, it took a while to tee it up with the person, and we teed up. Uh, the whole bit and uh i paid and then he's like i gotta go to an astronomy convention so i'll try to get that out sometime next week so we'll see if that arrives to me take a little bit of prompting and some time to uh to get those as well but they, n- none of this was very expensive it's just sort of uh, kind of my my astronomy for the week i suppose hmm. i'm just looking um for my time as club president way back in the day i i have a spreadsheet it's not up to date i think it's dated 2004 but it's a mm-hmm. listing of the books in the, the local club's library. And there's some other yeah. books uh, by Varenberg, um, Atlas Stellarum, volume one and two, or three. Oh, yeah. there's three volumes there. And uh, what's the other one? Uh, Atlas of Galactic Nebulae, uh, volumes one and two. Huh, cool. Yeah, interesting, yeah. And they also have the Atlas of Deep Sky Splendors, too. Yeah, I think I, think I remember even flipping through it once, uh, once there. That's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. And sort of a bit of a, a bit of a sad note, one of the, uh, people who, who I spent some time with observing back when I lived in Ontario, uh, passed away my uh, Rudolf Dorner, who's, who's, uh, really the founder and or funder of the, uh, Canadian telescope museum. And, uh, so I was chatting with my friend Clark about that and friend Randall about that as well. And, um, so, so Rudolf is Rudy as, as we call them, uh, an interesting, individual. I, I ran into him actually. I, I met him in the most natural way, natural setting possible. I drove out to one of the observing sites that uh, we used. Um, and by we, I mean my, my very small group of friends, like kind of like you and Mike and I, and, and there was a, a few other people like that in, uh, in the club. And we used to use these few locations and, uh, typically nobody else ever went to these spots. They were just like our own personal sites on little side roads kind of thing. As you, as you know, how, how we do it. Yep. Yep. Very familiar with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I got out to one of these spots and, uh, I was surprised to find, you know, a person I didn't know there set up with a telescope, um, which just seemed mind boggling to me because these, uh, these locations were, were just as obscure and remote as like the places that we go to, and I was like, oh, you're, you're doing astronomy. Actually, I think I saw them and I parked and I walked up because I didn't know what the person was doing. And I said, oh, would you mind if I drove in kind of thing? And they said, oh, no, come on in. And so I drove in and, and it, was, uh, it was Rudy. And uh, anyway, so I observed with them and he was such a, such a great and welcoming and warm, nice person. And uh, I, I didn't observe like that frequently with him, but every once in a while he'd, he'd come out. Um, so he was the person that had the, uh, Takahashi one, two, eight, 
FS128, which was oh, wow. really cool. Yeah. And, um, and so when I bought my, my, uh, Borg with the Pentax lenses in at the one, two, five F six, um, he brought his scope out and we ran a comparison back and forth with a bunch of experienced observers one night. So I still have that photo somewhere of the two of us with these telescopes set up. And it's, I don't know if anybody's ever seen two very large refractors set up side by side in the field before, but, um, it really looks like something. And we're on this, uh, we're actually on this side, I think. I think one or two of our listeners use this site out in a place called Moncton, Ontario, which is like the cement culvert. And we had them set up on here. And then we had gone out and set up early and then people were like driving up and it was like, Ooh, like it really looked like something out of a book. Right. Wish we had taken more photos. It was pretty cool. And uh, what else? He had some really amazing optics. He had some of those uh, like Swarovski uh, binoculars. I think they were, mm. um, and I remember we were, I think it may have even been like the first night I observed with them. And, and I was, I was just like, you know, looking through my binoculars or telescopes or whatever I had. And he said, uh, Oh, try these. And I remember like, I didn't know cause it's dark, right. Hands it to me. I'm like, yeah, great. He's like, Oh, put the next strap on. Don't drop them. I'm like, all right, sure. Fine. Whatever. So I looked through them. I'm like, Holy crap. What are these? <laughs> they were like something like that. If they weren't Swarovski, it was something pretty similar. Mm. And, um, uh, Oh man, they were just deadly, just deadly binoculars. So, so beautiful. Like the view comes right back. Like that moment comes right back to me. Um, And then the other thing that he had, which was pretty neat is he had the Kawa Highlander. uh, I think that's what they're called. The fluorite 82 millimeters. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. So we spend a couple nights with those. And yeah, then he, then the other thing he bought, which was really neat was, he bought a seven inch, um, one of those Intez Russian Maxudovs, uh, uh, Newtonian Max, Magnutes. And uh, he had one of the other club members build like a cradle and that for it. Um, so he had that set up in the traditional dub. And I remember we went out um, when he first got it and we're looking at, uh, at M57. So, so like I said, and probably those are, those are probably like pretty much like almost all the sessions we had together. It might've been two or three other sessions um, that we did. And, and on, I think it was, I think it was the second night I ever observed with him. I think on the first night when I met him down the lane, he noticed that I didn't have as good a tripod as what he thought I should have. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of person that he was. And like I said, I, you know, only probably observe with him maybe, maybe, maybe a couple dozen times at most, which isn't a lot for me. Um, and I remember that second or third night, he showed up with a tripod and gave it to me. <laughs> and it was really neat because he had built the tripod with some spare parts. And then the other thing that was neat is he had made that tripod the year I was born. <laughs> I just was blown away by the fact that it was this really old and beautiful tripod. And it looks really good. You've seen it. It's that wooden tripod that I have. Is it, and, is it the yeah. one with the broomstick legs? That's right. And, oh, and, wow. and he gave it to me and I was like, oh, gee, you know, no one's ever given me such a beautiful thing. And he said, no, no, but this is really funny because it's got broomsticks for legs. And I'm like, <laughs> what? And he said, yeah, this is great because, you know, if you're ever out observing somewhere in remote areas and the lag breaks, you know, you can just go to any like, you know, uh, what do you call them? Uh, like like a general store, store or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You can go anywhere and get a replacement. And I always love that because 
Um, although the legs never broke and I used that tripod more than anything else, I think that I've ever owned for astronomy. And it was given to me for free by, by this wonderful person. Um, I, I just love the fact that uh, when I'm out observing and, and I'm doing public observing and a, and a child is there with their parent and, and the child like trips over the tripod legs and this, this just happens, right. You know, you know mm-hmm. what it's like. Yep, for sure. And, and the parents like, Oh, you be careful. Don't break it. This is expensive. And I'm like, no, no, they're broomstick handles. <laughs> and the parents like, what? And I'm like, yeah, the, the tripod is just made out of broomstick handles and, and some wood that a friend of mine made. And <laughs> they're always like, so blown away. And I could, and they don't believe me. And I say, no, look, and you, cause you can see, cause there's this spot that goes into um, the broom or whatever it is that, that you, you're going to take the handle and put it into. And it's recessed a bit. And it's very clearly when, when you look closely at it, it's very clearly a broomstick handle at the end of each of those, uh, those tripod legs. So anyway, um, yeah, that's sort of my little story about, about Rudy and he's, uh, sort of the, the, uh, founder. And I think the funder of the, uh, of the telescope museum that, that my friend Randall that, and, and who you've met as well, uh, curates here, uh, in Canada, down in, down in Ontario. And I think it's got a lot of his telescopes and other telescopes and that sort of thing. But I've gone, I've gone to Rudy's house, I think a couple times and, uh, just such an, he was just a, a super interesting person, sort of one of the most interesting people I ever met. And, uh, and I went to his house, he invited me over, uh, he invited myself, not just me, but he invited my wife or went over for a drink or something, um, before I left. And he gifted me, um, a great big Atlas of the world. And I had seen these and I thought it was really cool. And maybe I'd mentioned it to somebody and he went out and bought one and gave it to me. Um, and it's, it's the most expensive and the largest book I have. It's unfortunately, I don't have a spot for it. I really should put it up somewhere, but, uh, maybe when I get an observatory built, I'll put it, put it in there, but it's, uh, it's like, a, I don't know, it's like a one-tenth scale atlas of the world. I'm just kidding, but it's really, really big. <laughs> it's huge. Anyway, so he had given that to me as well. But uh, he had a room in his house full of telescopes. And I remember going in and just like, I couldn't get over it. And I can't even recall the telescope. All the telescopes that I mentioned here already were in there. Plus, I don't know, at least a dozen more. He had all kinds of different telescopes and and interesting telescopes too, not just that they were, I, I forget what they, what the rest of them were, but, uh, but the, all those ones I listed like uh, seven inch Mac Newt and the Japanese fluorite 82 millimeter binoculars. And, you know, these, these are the kind of telescopes that were, that were in there, a five inch fluorite apochromat, um, you know, and, and other telescopes as well, but he had a whole room in his house for these. So anyway, uh, and as I was, I was talking to Randall a little bit about this, I was talking to Clark a little bit about this. Clark had a pretty funny story. So so Rudy was also, he was, uh, he was, you know, much better friends with, uh, with Clark, uh, towards the end of his life, as well as with, with my friend, Tim, um, uh, well, when I was living in Ontario and, uh, and Rudy, Rudy had recently, uh, before passing shared a pretty funny story about him and Tim, uh, going down to observe at the Lowell observatory. So the famous Lowell observatory there on Mars Hill in Arizona and, uh, and Rudy had rented it out um, for the two of them to go observing. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. So, but he and Tim were down there and apparently they had like the run of the place and, uh, and Tim grabbed one of the old 19th century eyepieces from, uh, uh, from Percival Lowell's collection. And cause like, I don't know what they were doing, but I guess they must've just left them in there. 
And, um, and so he grabbed one and in the dark or something, Tim like kind of like almost like dropped. It was kind of like juggling it. Oh, (laughs) Almost like smashed it on the floor, but eventually one of them got a, got a hold of this. And, uh, anyway, sort of, sort of a bit of a funny story that, uh, that Clark had, uh, had shared, but anyway, he, he passed away on March 9th and, uh, Clark had, had kindly sent his, his obituary, but, uh, didn't really mention much about astronomy in there. So I thought, huh, well, I'll share this year. And then that's a bit about Rudy's astronomy. He also had a, a lot of, uh, interest in business and finance and that sort of thing. And that's mostly what his obituary focused on. And astronomy was just something, uh, that he did for fun. And, uh, and he, it was a lot of fun observing with him as, as it is with many folks I've met over the years. So anyway, yeah, it's kind of sad. So, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, Sorry to hear it, but thanks for sharing. Uh, Sounds like a very interesting person. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, and I guess maybe one of the other reasons for sharing this is that, uh, and, and unfortunately, like he's not the first person I've, you know, spent many nights observing with you who passed away. Uh, Unfortunately, my friend, you know, Graham passed away a few years ago. I think you know that he was, Mm -hmm. he was somebody I I think I observed more than anybody else with. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it is kind of sad because this does happen. Uh, especially when you have friends that, uh, that are older and in the, in the, uh, astronomy hobby. So, so anyway, but, but it is, it is also neat because you do meet all these different people, though, no offense, Shane, but I probably would have, would have met lots of other, uh, IT folks like yourself in the course of my life. But, uh, <laughs> that's just, that's just the line of work I'm in, but you think about everybody else except yeah. for like you and I. And, uh, you know, uh, just, just the different occupations and the work that different people do, um, and just the, the different types of people that you meet that you'd never run into, uh, right. I don't think I ever would have run into or spent so many nights with, uh, hanging out with, with different people. And it really, you know, I find like uh, meeting people like Rudy and all the other people that I've met in astronomy, it really is a very enriching experience, you know, at least I find it to be. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I, I love the conversations that I have with people, um, that I meet under the stars, you know, whether it's, um, like regular astronomers or, um, just people from, you know, general public that are interested in looking through the telescopes, but, um, yeah, you know, we have some great conversations and you get to know a lot of people that way. Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, we had a photo from, from Bill. Do you want to take a look and, and talk about that for a sec? Yeah. So, uh, Bill sent us a photo of, um, what is it here? C 2004 Q2 comet McColtz from, uh, January 4th, 2005. Um, what, what cluster is that near? Um, Pleiades. Right. Right. Am I looking by the Pleiades? Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So is, is there an email with this too? I don't see it here. That, that, yeah, there was, there was a bit of an email with it that, uh, that Bill had, had, uh, sent, but I think the gist of it was that it just looked better with, uh, binoculars than, uh, necessarily it did in the photo. Um, but I, the, the reason why I wanted to put that in is I actually, I think I saw it that night. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I think I went out because that was, um, I was, I was working and as part of my job, I used to work on Mondays back in uh, my hometown and uh, sometimes on Tuesdays too, and sometimes Fridays, but mostly it was just Mondays, give or take. And uh, anyway, that, that week was after Christmas and I'd been home visiting with my folks. And so I just stayed home for like 
the following week or whatever it was, because I had to work uh, in our hometown um, for that period of time. And I remember that it could have been that night, or maybe it was, it was within a night or two of that, that I went out with, um, with one of the local astronomy club members in my hometown, which I hadn't done very much because usually I just wasn't around when it was clear and people were available. And so he and I had gone out and, uh, and had taken a look at the comet uh, when it was going by the Pleiades. I remember that quite well. Yeah. Through binoculars. So yeah, I think he brought out a 70 millimeter refractor that night too. So yeah, cool. Did, did you, do you remember observing that one or? Uh, yes. Yeah. That was early on in my like real, like when I had my first serious telescope, which was my eight inch uh, Skywatcher. Mm-hmm. I know I looked at it, but I'd have to check my observing logs to, uh, to see dates and things like that. But I think that was, uh, I thought that was year one of me owning my telescope. So I think when I observed it, it was just from the backyard, uh, you know, in our, in our city here. So the light pollution, uh, sort of, you know, took away a lot of the prettiness, I guess, of the comet. Yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing the tail, and I think I think it had like a pretty good anti-tail too, or an ion tail or something. But anyway, I remember it now. So got an email here from Clint. Uh, he says, uh, "Shall I read it?" Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So Clint says uh, that he finally finished finished listening to all of our episodes. So I uh, thank you for listening to all of those, Clint. He said, uh, now I'm in withdrawal from, uh, you know, from that and and waiting for the next episodes to drop. So yeah, we appreciate you going through and, and taking a listen to to them all. I'm always surprised that people go through and listen to the old ones. I always find that always, um, you know, I I appreciate it, but I'm always surprised at that. Are you? Well, some of them for sure, because some of them are, you know, like their point in time podcasts and, uh, they don't, they don't age well, (laughs) you know, like, uh, neither do I. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, but some of them, you know, some of them, uh, are not really, um, sensitive to the date on the calendar. So, you know, those ones I understand for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Clint goes on to say, uh, I want to give an update, uh, on my mount. He, he's another person who bought the, uh, a uh, ZGTI mount and uh, from Skywatcher um, sort of, I guess uh, maybe in part based on my recommendation or, or he's writing because he knows that I have one too. I think there's a few members uh, recently that have, that have bought it. Um, anyway, he says that his had been slewing um, in altitude when he was sending a commands to zoo uh, to slew in Azimuth uh, and vice versa. So he suspected that the motors had been uh, crosswired and uh he actually went in and, and did about 10 minutes of surgery, he said. And then he goes on to say, I had the mount back together with the motors reconnected to the correct points. Uh, quick test run, the mount was working perfectly. So I really wish uh, I'd been more brave in the in the earlier months of owning it. Uh, it was a very simple fix. So um, yeah, anyway, so that that's great that he got it, uh, that he got it working. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, and that's one of the things with these, uh, these mounts that, that I definitely have heard is that uh, kind of like my experience with the azimuth getting locked or the wires getting crossed in there is, is not too uncommon with them. And I think uh, that's one of the ways that they keep them uh, relatively inexpensive because I think they're, they're around 300 bucks or so brand new and it's pretty good mount considering it's $300. But uh, I think uh, sometimes the mounts do need to be tweaked either right away like his or, or over time like mine, because mine worked perfectly for a year. And then, uh, when we took it apart, we were like, oh, this, this isn't looking good. Right. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it took, took a little work there. 
Um, then he goes on to say, I was finishing up my session when my wife came out to see how things were going. Uh, she's not much of a Skynet. Yeah, we have that in common. And knowing that the lunar straight wall should be visible, I decided to take a quick peek and have her look through uh, the new scope as well. I didn't see the wall that night, but I will always remember how my wife responded when she looked at the moon through uh, the telescope for the first time. She said, oh, wow, that is so amazing. She actually pulled away from the eyepiece as if she wasn't sure what she was actually seeing. Um, a double take of sorts. I think she felt a little bit in awe, uh, you know, of, of what she was seeing. So that that's pretty cool. I definitely have had that experience with people before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the moon is great for that type of reaction, you know, because yeah. there's just so much detail to see and, you know, Saturn is probably, you know, equal in terms of the responses. Yeah. So Clint goes on to say, uh, I'm so happy with the new scope. I went ahead and ordered uh, two new uh, Explorer Scientific eyepieces. He got the 30 millimeter, 52 degree. I think that's a Plossel. And then he got the 14 millimeter, 82 degree. And then he also ordered this, which I think is super cool, which is the Bader Click Lock um, yeah. with the Max Bright Dielectric uh, Mirror Diagonal. Uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good piece of gear that will last him a long, long time. Yeah, that's a nice nice piece of gear that, uh, I mean, a good, you know, getting a good diagonal when I was, when I was first getting into astronomy, I would have bought a, the best diagonal I could have got sooner. And it took me about five or six years to buy a really good one. And I still have that like a really good diagonal, um, like a really high end one will last forever, almost forever. Like the one that I use and I still use the most is the one I bought when I got my five inch back in 2000 and, um, seven. And, uh, you know, it's, it's still very, very good. I I've replaced it now, but I still use it most nights. So definitely mm -hmm. good. Let's see. Um, yeah. Clint goes on to say, I'm hopeful to take the new scope out a few times to a nearby dark sky designated site, uh, which is called craters of the moon. And uh, then he says, yes, it's actually called that. And I, I was familiar with that. Uh, Clint is in Idaho and Idaho is on my places of, uh, you know, to visit. I, I've seen so many great photos and, uh, and, and stories of people that have gone to visit there. And it's not that far for us, really. No, no, it's uh it's a reasonable driving distance. It would take us probably a couple days, maybe, yeah. well, maybe it's a one day drive. I can't remember, but yeah, it's not, it's not too far. I think it's about eight or 10 hours of, of oh, drive yeah. time. Well, and I think easy. you can, I think you can go by way of like grasslands. So I think maybe at a future point in time, maybe I'll do a grasslands trip and then, you know, go to grasslands for a night or two and then yeah. drive over there and maybe come back through, uh, through Calgary or something. So anyway, um, he says there is great camping there. And if you ever make it this way, uh, he would love to show me around. I would love that too. And uh, he goes on to say this. Uh, Shane mentioned in one of your recent podcasts that there is nothing better at 1 a.m. than a burger fresh off the grill. <laughs> <laughs> I own a restaurant that specializes in fried chicken, and I would be willing to bet that I could change Shane's mind with some assistance from the portable fryer that I have. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, when I read that, I, I chuckled. I like it. I'll, I'd be more than willing to give fried chicken a try at one in the morning, for sure. And it's, it's also amazing. So, uh, so that would, that would place him in, uh, in a very growing number of our, uh, listeners who, who have owned or, or own restaurants or have some sort of connection to the food industry. I know we've got somebody with, uh, with a barbecue, um, YouTube channel. We, we've got, um, chef Ozzy 
um, who's who's worked in the restaurant industry in a number of different ways. We've we've got Clint there in Idaho with fried chicken. Um, yeah, you know, personally, and I saw that and I laughed because um, I'd be more of a fried chicken person, I think, than a burger person. So, <laughs> you know, that you know, I'm, I'm already there. I'm already there. All right, good stuff. <laughs> All right, let's see. Now we have one from uh, Peter. Do you want to read uh, Peter's note here about his C5 and his AZ GTI? Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's interesting. So like you mentioned, a number of uh, people that write us have this AZ GTI, but even just reading on cloudy nights, a lot of people have this mount and um, you know, it's uh, it's gotta be like a real winner for Skywatcher just based on all of the reports I'm seeing about uh, people using this thing. So, um, so Peter writes, hi, Chris and Shane, Uh, a little follow-up on the C5 and AZ GTI. Uh, For the M42 picture, I had the C5 mounted on my CGM2, which is uh, computer controlled by an an Assayer. I don't know how you say that, Pro. Um, Like that's, uh, it sort of looks like a, I don't know, like a USB hub almost. Those boxes, I think they're just uh, a a box with a whole bunch of ports and it has the intelligence to, uh, you know, manage your imaging setup. Um, so he says the setup is balanced with a single five pound counterweight. Uh, I've only got a single accessory mounting base on the OTA so far. I'll be fixing that soon. Uh, and it's better for balance. Uh, I launched a new topic on cloudy nights to see what I might learn from other C5 users. Uh, got lots of interesting stuff about the field of view using reducers. Um, and then he lists the link there. Uh, the C5 and C6 has a one inch, not one and a quarter, uh, baffle tube at the back. Uh, you can use it with two inch eyepieces, but with significant, significant vignetting, uh, in daylight, I compared the views with several one and a quarter and two inch eyepieces. Uh, the closest to an apples to apples comparison was a 26 millimeter, two inch versus a 25 millimeter inch and a quarter. Uh, the two inch field of view was significantly wider, but nowhere near the difference you would see between two eyepieces on say a C nine and a quarter, uh, with respect to the AZ GTI, uh, there's another, excuse me, there's another topic on cloudy nights that I contributed to. And he lists the the link there. Uh, one of the guys on there uses his AZ GTI with an ADM adapter on a stellar view 102 ED which is about the same weight price as Attack FC 100DZ. Uh, the second picture below shows the ADM setup. It's okay, but I'm quite nervous about only one screw and the top is plastic uh, holding the scope in place. Uh, the next step is to drill and tap holes in the adapter part to put a larger two screw ADM Vixen shoe on there. Uh, it may be that the AZ GTI is reserved for the C5 and small refractors still thinking about this, uh, all the best. And then, uh, Peter says, PS, I need to watch out or I'm going to end up with as many scopes as Ed Ting. And, uh, to me, that sounds like a goal. Like I, I want as many goal? scopes as Ed Ting. Has. <laughs> yeah, I know. I like, uh, I like the setups, uh, Peter's going with here and, uh, yeah, I also have the ADM. Uh, adapter. I haven't put mine on yet. I think you and I were chatting. I don't know if I mentioned on the podcast and try yeah. to get your, your help, uh, getting that situated. Maybe we can take some pictures and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I'm kind of at the same feeling. The, the one thing that concerns me a little bit about it is that 
if you back it off too far, the whole top comes off. And uh, I'm a little bit worried about that happening in the field. I feel like there's like springs in there. I feel like that could just end my observing for a weekend if I was out with it. So anyway, uh, I need to get Shane to, to take a look. I kind of wish they'd put like a, a catch or something on it to prevent that from happening. Um, and then as well, I think that's cool that he's going to go and tap uh, another couple of uh, of screw holes there to uh, to make sure that uh, that he's able to get a, a proper purchase. But they do make different sized adapters, and I did him and Ha over getting the larger one. It just seemed to add significantly more weight and uh, and the ability to put eighty or uh, the ability to put Lozmendi plates on it seemed almost ridiculous for such a little mount because the mount is only I don't know like five inches by five inches by five inches or something. It's just, it's not that big. Yeah. It's, it's quite tiny. small. Yeah. So yeah, it kind of is what it is. So yeah, I look forward to, to kind of getting it. I think I wanted to do like another night when it wasn't freezing cold and uh, just kind of slew around, make sure it is working hundred percent before I mod it. Yeah. Yeah. And just the reference to the stellar view intact pricing. I think he is looking at the stellar view triplet uh, because the, uh, the doublet by stellar view is about a thousand dollars less than the DZ from Takahashi, oh. but the triplet stellar view is about the same price as the DZ. So yeah, just, I looked, uh, just a I point did, of detail. I did look them up and, uh, yeah, he's right. It's, I think the, the stellar view was like 3,090 USD or 3,085, anyway, something like that. And then the tack. Uh, 100 DC is 3130 or something yeah, like 30, that. 3130. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not it's not too different in price. And then I think, uh, well, there's a couple pretty significant differences there. Um, one is that the Stellar V does come with like a three inch focuser and rings and a Lasmini plate and some mm-hmm. other uh, bells bells and whistles. And you, like you said, I think it's a triplet. Yeah, it's a triplet, and the the tack is a doublet. Yeah. So. So you got a slightly different uh, telescope there, maybe a little bit more um, tuned towards like the the imager out there who wants to put like big chip cameras on on the back end of it versus the TAC, which just has the regular, um, I think just like a two inch focuser on it kind of thing and doesn't come with any rings or clamshell or I don't think it comes with any of that. You have to add it all on separate. So that they are kind of different, different telescopes, like the, in my opinion, anyway, for what it's worth, like, I, I feel like the tack is more of a, like a sort of an ultimate visual, um, four inch telescope. And I think the stellar view is, is more like, uh, like a great imaging, uh, instrument, but like a triplet, you know, a triplet, not all telescopes are equal. A triplet like that will definitely take a lot longer to cool down eh, than, than, a than a four inch mm-hmm. doublet. Yeah, they, they do. Uh, which is why I don't own any, um, like I, I want my telescope to get as cool or, you know, acclimatize as quickly as possible. Um, so yeah, that's one, you know, that's one reason why I, you know, tend to stick to doublets. Uh, and then the other reason is a triplet is, uh, you, it, it certainly adds a, a significant amount of weight. Like there, there's a big yeah. difference. Um, like just in taking a look at the stellar view doublet to see what it weighs versus the triplet. I don't know if that's easy to find on here. Yeah. I don't know. I looked up one of them was 9.8 pounds or roughly 10 pounds anyway, before dressing. And, uh, I think the hundred DZ is eight. It's something like that eight or 8.8 or 8.5. Um, anyway, it's like 3.4 or 3.5 kilograms. Um, 
and and the DZ had come out when I bought my my 100 um, uh, millimeter DC from Takahashi. Um, but the reason why I went with the 100 DC, and a lot of people were debating whether they would get the 100 DC or the 100 DZ uh, at that time, and uh, it was a pretty easy decision because I think here in Canada, the DZ pricing had just been released, and I feel like it was close to like a thousand dollars difference. It was going to be like a massive difference in price. And the other thing is, is that the DZ is um, the same weight and a slightly longer focal length than my uh, Pentax uh, five inch. And I like the hundred millimeter DC because it is uh, significantly lighter than, than my Pentax. And so it just between the, the money and the portability and then the reports that the DC is pretty much uh, really getting up there in performance for, for a four-inch telescope. Anyway, I thought, well, you know, that this is going to be a great scope and it has been and certainly uh, has has got a lot of miles on it now. So, yeah, I'm really happy I've gone with that. But, yeah, I've been thinking about getting the the uh, Skywatcher uh, AZ-EQ5 and then uh, being able to mount that, that five-inch uh, uh, Borg Pentax up uh, a little bit better and, and maybe get some more use out of that. But it's fun fun to have all these telescopes. Not not to not to go too Ed Ting here, but it is fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just regarding the weight difference between the triplet and the doublet, it's actually not as big as I thought. <clears throat> it's oh, yeah. only uh, 0.8 pounds uh, difference uh, that the triplet uh, has over the doublet. So mm. that's not too bad. Yeah, not too bad. Um, again, though, I, I don't know. I've observed some triplets and they're great. I just for visual though, I'd rather probably have, have the doublet for, for cool down. And, uh, and then as well, I, I don't, I, I think the, the third element from what I understand, and I'm not an imager, so somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, I think that does increase your, um, imaging performance quite a bit, whereas it doesn't, I don't think it does as much for the, for the visual side of things, you know, and kind of like all things being equal, really good long focal length doublets are probably, uh, equally as, as good visually as a slightly shorter focal length, uh, triplets or, you know, it's, it's kind of a bit of a wash just because that's just the way they set them up. Cause I think that one Oh two from stellar view is like an F seven versus the tack, which is like an F eight. So, you know, you're getting a slightly longer, slightly lighter telescope versus the slightly shorter, slightly heavier telescope. Um, but that triplet really does add to your cool down time, which for me is just a visual, um, person, then, you know, it's, 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 it's not going to be the way that I would go. So mm-hmm. that's my two cents. One, one triplet that does intrigue me a little bit is the Takahashi, uh, TSA one Oh two. Um, a lot of visual observers state that that's the finest four, uh, four inch ever made. Um, Bill Paoloni being one of them, he has, he owns one of yeah. those telescopes and, um, uh, I've never looked through one, but I would like to. Yeah. I don't think I've ever looked through one of those either. And uh, I think they make a TSA 120 still. I think the 102 is out, but yeah, know. yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, but they made those uh, 120s, and then of course they they have a, a 150 millimeter F A O F O A something like that. I think that one might be a triplet too, and I think they have a five inch, another five inch one of a slightly different, um, you know, version. Um, that's also triplet, but I do hear they take an awful long time to cool down. So, you know, that's something here that we have to pay attention to because 
our nights are very, very uh, different temperature wise than, than the days. Like, like Shane, it's, it's nothing for us to be out hanging out in shorts and t-shirts at plus 32 C during the day and, uh, and to be kind of scraping frost off the cars um, when we're tearing down at night, like that, that happens to us every year. Does, I mean, am I speaking out of turn, but that's pretty common here, isn't it? Yeah, it can. Um, it, it, especially like depending where you're located, like if you're in a Valley, um, like where we observe typically in grasslands, um, yeah, the overnight temperatures can really dip. Um, yeah. now that's not all of the time, you know, like it's sometimes it's a more, I guess maybe natural cooling at night, but certainly we can get some big swings. Yeah. And, and so that would be like a 30 degree temperature swing anyway. And, uh, and at least 20 degrees is, is nothing like it's not uncommon to be, um, you know, 35 degrees in grasslands at, uh, at the daytime high, and then, uh, be like hanging out around 10, 11 degrees at night is, uh, that's, that's almost like the average temperature swing there 20, uh, you know, two dozen uh, degrees, 24 25 degrees difference in temperature. That's pretty common there, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that, that can play havoc with triplets for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's one of the reasons why I um, kind of grew frustrated with my old mead light bridge was just the, the, I felt like it never really caught up to the cooling uh, on some nights. Now, you know, not that those nights were probably the most common, but certainly, you know, they happen. Right. And it was frustrating yeah. trying to get that big telescope to keep up with the temperatures around it. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I remember going out one night with, uh, with Mike, I had my five inch out and, uh, we were looking at Jupiter or something and he's, he's pretty good. Like if, if we go out to grasslands, like he's pretty good at figuring out a way to keep his telescope cool or whatever. And, and so he does better on those environments. I think then like we just went out observing at a side road pull off one night and it was just like a particularly bad night for this, I guess. I remember he set up and we were looking at Jupiter and it was just like, whoa, the seeing wasn't great. And it was mushy. And then through the five inch, you could see the bands and that, but uh, still, still not an amazing night, but yeah, you can definitely see like a difference um, when you go from uh, a larger scope in, in bad seeing that isn't cooled to, uh, to a smaller telescope uh, in that same condition, but, th- but that has been cooled. So yeah, you, you can kind of uh, track on that. Well, uh, anything else to add to, uh, to this episode, Gene? No, that's all I have, Chris. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, be sure to subscribe in your pod catching software. And we're always excited. We And when I say we're always excited, I really do mean that we are excited to get your observing emails to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Um, really interested to hear what people are observing. Um, I, I love getting these emails. To me, this is like, um, like a butterscotch Sunday um, when I see these come in. Because I what I do is I save them to read um, for like a break at work. Like, um, you know, sometimes I have to switch gears and, uh, I have to transition from one project I'm working on to another. And I find, um, that I just need to take five minutes and I'll sit down and I'll just read that person's email, uh, for five or six minutes and, uh, you know, and then, then sort of save it and send a reply that night. But, uh, yeah, it's always, always really great. Uh, so usually I end up, uh, replying to the emails after my dinner. So I always, I always think of these as like dessert. (laughs) well i like like the analogy (laughs) there you go so we look forward uh to reading more of your your emails uh dear listener please send them to actualastronomy at gmail.com with that i'll thank shane again and thank everybody for listening bye-bye thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show 
If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>